0: Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Today we're going to pick up from where Enro left off last Lord's Day with verse 22, and we'll cover roughly down to verse 44. However, I want to begin our reading in verse 1. And again, just to remind you why I want to read the larger section before we get into our block of text. I think it's always very important to read a portion of Scripture within its larger context. Now, there's nothing wrong with holding in on details. We have to do that. We must do that. We can't avoid that. However, if that's all you do, I think oftentimes you run the risk of forgetting why those verses are there in the first place. John here is telling a story, and there are certain things about the person and the ministry of Christ that he highlights for us. And there are some things that he leaves out that other writers include. So I always find it helpful to read these larger portions of a text to help spot what those highlights are and why they are there. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, as we now come to this most sacred time to hear from you, from your word, May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your word intends for us to see and hear. Ultimately, we know that there is only one teacher. And so teach us, Father. Draw us in through your word, through your spirit. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, if you recall, in chapter five, Jesus performed a miracle. He healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Then, because of what he did, And when he did it, that triggered some Jews to the point that they wanted to kill him. They got mad because not only was he doing these things on the Sabbath, which Jesus answered, my father is working until now and I am working, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That then led Jesus into a teaching about himself and his mission. And some of the things we learned about Jesus in that teaching were his oneness with the Father, his desire to do the Father's will, his mission uh, that that he came to bring life, life eternal, and his authority to execute judgment, particularly when he raises all men from the dead on the last day. He then ends that teaching by rebuking those who claim to be searching the Scripture to obtain eternal life, but failed to recognize that Jesus was the very one those scriptures pointed to. He is the resurrection. He is eternal life. It was and is about him, but they refused his testimony. So as I read that last portion of that teaching, pay very close attention to the wording, because some of these same elements are going to come back up in chapter 6. He says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing... But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words?" And then we come to chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting his eyes up then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled baskets with fragments from the twelve, excuse me, filled twelve baskets with fragments from the twelve barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, this is great. This is wonderful. With that last miracle, they were ready to kill Jesus. Now, they're recognizing Jesus as the prophet. And not just any prophet, but the very prophet promised by Moses. With the last miracle, Jesus rebuked them for not believing what Moses had said about him. Now, it appears they're embracing what Moses said about Jesus. And yet, we come to verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now that just seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Again, in chapter 5, Jesus performs a miracle. They get upset. They would not embrace him. They would not hear what Moses said about him. They would not come to him. In fact, they wanted to kill him. Now, Jesus performs this miracle, their bellies are full, they're feeling great. Hey, this is the prophet spoken of by Moses, let's go to him, let's make him king. And what does Jesus do? He walks off. Why? What is he doing? I thought that's what Jesus wanted. They're acknowledging what Moses said. They want him as king. (laughs) And his response is to walk away from them? Why? Well, at this point, it doesn't really explain why. But hang on to those words because the explanation is coming. But before we get to the explanation, John interjects with another miracle story. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. When did you come here? Now, let's stop there for a minute. I find this short little story within a story about Jesus walking on water very interesting here. The reason why is because as we saw in chapter 5, Jesus performs a miracle that gets the attention of the crowd, and that in turn leads to a teaching in which Jesus relates what he teaches to the miracle that he performed. We talked about, if you remember, for example, in detail, the relationship of his teaching in chapter 5 with the miracle that he performed there. And so I won't go into that again. But here he does it again. And here the connection may even be more obvious. Jesus feeds over 5,000 people with bread and fish and then goes on to teach them that he is the bread of life. That's clearly connected, right? But before we get to that teaching... John inserts this short little story about Jesus walking on water. Why did he do that? Is there a connection between this episode of Jesus walking on water with Jesus feeding over 5,000 people? I think there is. So what's the connection? Well, the first thing that sticks out to me is this whole business of Jesus withdrawing himself from some but then going to others. Again, what did we hear in verse 15 after Jesus fed the crowd? Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, notice the emphasis placed in this story within a story. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So Jesus withdraws from the crowd and even from the disciples for a moment, but he doesn't leave the disciples alone for long. Verse 18, the sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened, but he said to them, It is, I do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So do you see the contrast here? I can't help but think that this is intentional on John's part. Jesus withdrew himself from some people, but then he intentionally goes to others. And then verse 22, again, notice the emphasis placed on Jesus and where he's at and who he's with. When did you come here? Do you see how that if you step back a little bit and read more, certain things start to jump out at you? There is certainly something going on with this business of Jesus withdrawing from some and yet going to others. And now even having some of those of whom Jesus withdrew from now actively searching for him. But now notice how Jesus responds to some who were searching him and and found him. Remember, we had asked back in verse 15 why Jesus would withdraw himself from people who seemed to be accepting him as the prophet and wanting to make him king. Well, Jesus is about to answer why. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And now notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't even answer their question just ignores the question. And he goes straight for the jugular. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there are a number of details we could get into with this text. We could talk about Moses. We could talk about that generation in the wilderness and the parallels. We could talk about the man and so on. But what I want to do today is simply focus on where Jesus takes all this. Jesus clearly makes the point over and over again, not only what we have read, but what we're going to read Further in John, this chapter and other chapters, is that this whole business of salvation, this whole plan of redemption, how it is carried out, to whom it is carried out, all of it is by the sole sovereign prerogative of God. And there are no alternatives, there are no majority votes. There is no concern on the part of God to ask us for our opinions and our input. This is his sovereign will in his sovereign work. And it will be carried out as he planned and for whom he planned. And that's that. Full stop. And I believe this is made clear in all of this interaction that's going on between Jesus, the crowds and the disciples. Again, he performs a miracle for the crowd. And just when you think the crowd responds favorably this time and is doing the right thing, Jesus walks away from them because he knew what was in their heart. And he knew that they were seeking him for the wrong reasons. And then what does he do? Then he performs this very personal and private miracle just for his disciples. He doesn't leave them alone, but he goes to them. And there you see the emphasis placed on the presence of Christ. Beloved, you see the contrast between man and what happens when man seeks Jesus on man's terms versus what happens when Jesus is sought or better when we are sought by Jesus on his terms. And notice that even when this crowd here in chapter 6 appears to have responded in a way entirely different than those in chapter 5, Back then, they wanted to kill Jesus. Here, they seem to be accepting him as a prophet and want to make him king. There actually ends up being no difference at all between the two groups. In chapter 5, what was said of those people? Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then verses 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, hear what Jesus says about this crowd here in chapter 6 that appears to be a different crowd, different mentality. But is it? Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, give him glory, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And then verse 41, so the Jews grumbled because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. See, it all appeared to be a different response here in chapter 6, a favorable response. But beloved, in reality, it was no different. In reality, these people in chapter 6 had the same root sin that those in chapter 5 had. That is unbelief, a refusal to accept Jesus for who he truly is and for what he truly came to accomplish. Beloved, unbelief can take many forms. For some, it'll be a flat-out, almost militant atheism. I don't want to talk about the Bible. I don't want to talk about Jesus. Heck, I don't even believe there is a God. But for others, and to me, this is the scariest part, unbelief can appear very religious and good on the surface. It can appear to be accepting of Jesus. It can appear to affirm some of what Scripture says about Jesus. It can even appear as a desire to make Jesus king over our lives. But at its root, it's no different. It's still a humanistic, Man centered front that only uses Jesus and uses the Bible to get whatever their sinful desires want and not to submit to what God demands. Oh, we'll come to Jesus. We'll come to church. We might even partake in communion and do this and do that, but we will come on our terms. Well, I hate to bust your bubble, but that's not how it works. It's not how it's going to work. And the real scary part here is that there are thousands of people sitting in pews every week thinking that that's how it's going to go down. And they're going to be in it for a rude awakening when they realize that all judgment has been given to the Son, and the Son desires nothing but to do the will of the Father And the father, along with the son, withdraw from those who think that God is their little personal genie to grant their wishes. Well, I don't want to end this on a negative note, so let's end it on a positive. And we can do so by asking this question. What then is the will of the father? What is the purpose? What is the plan? Here in this text, we have very strong and clear statements as to what that plan is. First thing I want you to see is that it is God who gives to Jesus those he has chosen. You see this in verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. You see this in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. We're going to see it in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And we'll see it again in verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Furthermore, as we go off further into this gospel, John ten twenty-nine says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In John 17, verses 1 through 2, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Then verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And then verses 11 through 12, chapter 17, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then finally, John 18, verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Beloved, God is not anxiously sitting around, waiting for people to come to him. If that were the case, no one would come. For Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Oh, but Jason, it says here in chapter 6 that this crowd sought after Jesus. True, but they sought him for the wrong reasons. Those who seek Christ for the right reasons will come because the Father has chosen them. Secondly, because God has chosen them and given them to Jesus, they will come to Jesus. It's not a hypothetical. It's not a a wish, wishful thinking on Jesus' part. They will come to Jesus. Again, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, we oftentimes get this turned around. Notice that all that the father gives to the son will come to the son. They don't go to the son first and then the father gives them to the son. Rather, those who go are those who were given to go. Again, John 10, verses 25 through 27. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Beloved, those who are not of God's elect and redeemed people will not trust in Christ despite all the miracles. Is that not what we see here with this crowd and with Jesus' miracles? Furthermore, the defining mark of those whom God chose is that they will hear the Son's voice and they will obey his word. Thirdly, we see that those given to Jesus are kept or preserved by Jesus. Again, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In John 10, 27 through 30, we, we read, my, voice, uh, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Beloved, take great comfort in this today that Jesus will not lose anyone who comes to him. He'll never lose you. He'll never reject you. You may not see this in the miracle with the the story within the story. Even as the darkness came and the sea became rough due to a strong wind, Jesus comes to his disciples doesn't leave them alone. He brings peace and joy. Beloved, he will never forsake us, no matter how difficult or how impossible life may seem to get. And then fourth, we see that Jesus will raise us from the dead on the last day. Now, I spent some time on this great truth in my last sermon from chapter 5, so I don't want to get into those details again. But only to remind you that the bodily resurrection of the dead is an essential component to God's work of redemption. Twice now, Jesus brings up resurrection in a discourse about his mission and the will of the Father. Beloved, it is an essential component to the gospel, without which there is no gospel. And cursed be anyone who tells you otherwise. Listen to verses 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I like this little side note from John Piper. Jesus knows that death looks to everyone like a defeat, a loss. It looks as though at least our bodies are lost. We may think he loses nothing of all he has given him, but it looks like he at least loses his body. And to that, Jesus says two times to make it crystal clear, I will raise it up on the last day. Not even your body will be lost. Quote. So, beloved, we see that you will never be forsaken. Even in death. And our Lord will preserve and save that which he has promised to save. And then fifth and lastly, notice that this plan is built upon the unshakable foundation of God's sovereign will. Notice in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Notice the word for in verse 38. The word for there is giving you the reason. It's giving you the rationale for what precedes it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Why? Why will all whom the Father chose and gave to the Son... Come to Jesus. Why will all those whom the Father uh, chose and comes to Jesus never be lost? Verse 38, 4. Here's your reason. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Beloved, there is no greater promise than the will of the Father being carried out by the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit. This is our hope. It's not in ourselves. It's not in man. It's not in our opinions. It's not in what the majority votes. But it is in the will of the Father. calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far, far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Now, as we come to a close, upon hearing all this, you may then wonder well, how do I know if I'm of God's elect? How do I know if I'm among those chosen? I mean, wouldn't I need to know that first before I go looking for Jesus? Well, the simple fact is we weren't around when God chose those whom he would save, we weren't part of the process, we weren't given our input, our advice. So, in that sense, we don't know. However, we do know this, according to this text that we see here in John 6 that those who come to Jesus, those who believe, those who embrace the Messiah for who he truly is and for the purpose he truly came to do, those who embrace him on his terms and not your own, you will reveal yourself to be those whom the Father has chosen. And so, come. It's that simple. Come. Come to Jesus. Ditch your pride. Ditch your opinions about what you think is right or wrong. Ditch your perversions of God. This idea of making him into a little genie to fulfill all your desires. And come to him as he is On his terms. For he says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so I ask you to come. Don't worry about all the stuff going on behind the scenes. You'll never know it. You'll never understand it. That's not your duty. We're told here what your duty is. So come to Jesus. To who he truly is, on his terms. Let us pray.